Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow and enjoy the episode. Thanks, Dave. Well, as always, great to be here. Feels like it was just the other day that I was here. It was, yeah, two weeks ago, I think it was. And um, thanks, Dave, for that clock, except it's meant to be directly in front of me, so I don't have to keep looking to my left. But um, nah, we'll, we aim for 30 minutes, and uh, that really is what we hope for, except, of course, if you're Dave. Because 30 minutes is just generally his intro, and then he gets going. Hey. Apparently, he holds the record still at Horsham Downs. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, amongst the present eldership. Wow. Then who's watching a clock? Then we put that face that the other way around. Huh? All right. Great. So um, as Dave rightly said, we're kicking off a four-part series on worship. And we've entitled it The Worshipping Body. Because worship is one of those things that possibly means a variety of things to, to different people. Huh? And so I think worship, of course, is anything and everything we do that pleases God. Wouldn't you say that? And so if what we do gives him honor, brings him glory and praise, then it's worship. Whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God is an act of worship. And so, of course, that means then that our lives should be an act of worship. And not just something we do here on a Sunday. But 24-7, our lives should represent God, should honor God, should please God, and therefore be worship unto the Lord. But the worship that we're going to talk about, and we're going to look over the next four weeks, is the worship we give to God when we gather together as his people. In other words, the praises we give him in words, in song, in music, in actions, and the heart attitude that accompanies that praise. And so that's the worship that we're looking at. And so I don't want to keep qualifying what kind of or what aspect of worship we're referring to. So I'm just trying to set the scene. So you have an understanding of what we're wanting to approach or wanting to hit this morning and over the next four weeks. Because if it was just general worship, let me tell you, we need a year to talk about that. But we want to look at the worship that we do as we come together as God's people. Much like what David said in Psalm 34, verse 3, when he said, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And you know what? We did that this morning. We glorified the Lord with one another, and we exalted his name together. And so the worship we're talking about is the corporate activity of glorifying God with our hearts and with our voices. Notice it's not one or the other. It's always got to be both. And in fact, Jesus challenged the people in his day in Matthew 15, 8, when he, he spoke about these people as those who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, let me put a disclaimer in here. I have been guilty many times of that. Many times of that. Yes, singing songs of praise and of worship to my God, but my heart being distracted with a variety of other things, not fully engaged. And, uh, and so over the four, these four weeks, I want to just give you a breakdown of what it's going to look like. So this morning, we're going to look at the nature of worship. 
And by that, we, we're trying to establish the what of worship. Next week, we'll look at the purpose of worship. And Liam's going to come and do that. In other words, what is the why of worship? Why do we do it? Third week is the results of worship, which would be the effect of worship. What does it do to God? What does it do for us? And then lastly, the practice of worship, which is the how of worship. And I trust we're going to be able to give some handles on what that looks like and how we can do that in a way that honors God and pleases Him. But let's get back to this morning, huh? the nature, the importance, the essence, the value of our corporate worship, our public worship, our communal worship, whichever term you want to use. And so let me say again, worship is something we do when we come into God's presence. In other words, it's us responding to his presence. That's what worship is. And again, we do it with hearts and voices that are lifted up to him in praise and thanks and adoration. And we do it in such a way that those around us can hear it and benefit from it. And so it's not only you and God. There's plenty of other forums for that to happen. But this is you, God, and everyone else around that are going to be beneficiaries of that. And the value that that brings. And Simon prayed a wonderful prayer this morning in our prayer meeting, which, by the way, you are invited to. Nine o'clock every Sunday morning as we pray for this morning. And he spoke about how candles all coming together where there's just such warmth, such life, such brightness. Yes, we all have a candle that brights, that is, a, that, is, that is lit and is able to worship God. But let me tell you, when we all come together, like we do here on a Sunday morning, or at a prayer meeting, or at a life group, or wherever it may be, there is something incredibly significant and so valuable when we do it together. Eh? Amen. In Psalm, uh, no, sorry, in Colossians 3.16, we're exhorted to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And so that's the encouragement from Scripture, that when we come together, we do just that and a whole lot of other things. But for me, this is the starting point. And that's why the primary reason for gathering together is so that we can glorify God with hearts and voices lifted up to him in praise and adoration. And then, may I say, followed on by everything else that happens, be it the preaching of God's word, be it the fellowship, be it breaking of bread, be it baptisms, be it testimonies, be it prayers, whatever it may be. It's what God said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me. First and foremost, before anything else, Exodus 7, 16. This is what N.T. Wright, quite a well-known Anglican theologian, and he says this, from time to time, the church should take, should take stock of that which is most central, most important, and most vital in our common life together. Though we sing with the tongues of men and angels, if we are not truly worshiping the living God, we are noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. Though we organize the liturgy most beautifully, if it does not enable us to worship the living God, we are mere ballet dancers. 
Though we repave the floor and resurface the stonework and put the air conditioners in, that's me. If it does, if it, uh, sorry, though we balance the budgets and attract all the seekers, if we are not worshiping God, we are nothing. Nothing. And that's why corporate worship is not an optional extra for the church. Can I say it's the very nature of the church? It's the heartbeat of the church. It's the life of the church. It's the breath of the church. It's what we've been created for. You know, the shortened version of the West, of the Westminster Catechism tells us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Yes, generally, but also when we come together. That our chief reason for gathering together here on a Sunday is to bring glory and honor to God before anything else. It was C.S. Lewis who said, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. God wants both. Yes, we come to glorify him, and in that, we so enjoy him. In Isaiah 43, verse 7, God speaks of his sons and his daughters as those whom he created for his glory. Before anything else, he's created you, he's created me, ultimately for his glory. Which is why worship is more about our relationship with God than it is about the form or the liturgy that it takes. Whether it's Eucharistic or charismatic in nature. Whether it's liturgical or full of laughter whether it's with raised hands or lowered faces, whether we do it kneeling or dancing, whether it's confessing or testifying, it does not matter. As long as it's for God and is certainly about God. And so if we truly believe that worship is for God, that worship is about God, then the reality is we won't be so concerned about the style of worship, the tempo of worship, or the arrangement that our corporate worship takes, or the way that it looks. That'll be secondary. In Ephesians 1.12, Paul says that we who first hoped in Christ might live for the praise of his glory. Let me say it again. The praise of his glory is what we live for, is what we need to live for. It's what we made for. It's what we've been called for. And you know what? It's what we'll be doing for all eternity. And so the point is, God alone is worthy of our worship. In fact, he says he won't share his glory with another. Isaiah 48 verse 11. And so we want to look at three aspects to the nature of worship this morning. The first one, which I've already touched on, is that God is worthy of our worship. Secondly, that worship is about us doing the will of God. And then thirdly, how God seeks worship as much as he seeks worshipers. eh? And so, firstly then, if God is worthy of worship, then everything that happens 
in our so-called worship service should be designed to call attention to God and to get people to think about Him. It can never be about ourselves. In fact, worship must not ever be about ourselves or us thinking somehow that worship is for us or for our benefit or betterment. Now, yes, this, the byproduct of our worship is that we'll be blessed and resourced and strengthened and built up and closer to God, absolutely. But ultimately, it's for Him. It's about Him. Psalm 22, verse 3. The psalmist says, you, speaking to God, you are enthroned as the Holy One, you are the praise of Israel. No one else, nothing else, nothing else we do. It's you and you alone. The footnote says there's a variety of ways to interpret that. It says uh, you are the praise of Israel or the one Israel praises or the one enthroned on the praises of Israel. All saying the same thing. God alone is worthy. And all of our praise has to be directed to him. And so that's why I want to say worship is an end in itself. It is an end in itself. Why? Because it's always for God. It's always about God. And it always needs to be directed to God. For who he is and for all that he's done and is doing. And so worship, which means then worship is not the prelude or the warm-up to the main event. It's not something we do just to get us going so that we're ready or prepare our hearts for the preaching of God's Word. Preaching of God's Word, absolutely important. Testimonies that get shared here, absolutely important. When we break bread together, vitally important. When we fellowship together, absolutely important. But let me tell you, our worship is the main event. Why? Because it is for the main one. It is about he who is the main one, the reason we gather. Listen to what scripture says as we get a glimpse of something of the worship that's happening in heaven. In Revelation 4.11, it tells us how the 24 elders fall down before him saying, you are worthy. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And so these elders were moved by their revelation of who it is that stands before them. And I want to tell you, can that be the wonderful motivation of our worship? The revelation of who it is that we stand before honoring and worshiping that surely has got to move our hearts eh? in revelation 5 12 it's not just the 24 elders but now we see the multitude of angels sang in a loud voice they've encouraged us in that this morning to sing with loud voices why because it's biblical it's scriptural it's the example we see here and they sang in loud voices what did they sing worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise and any other superlatives that come in. They were wowed. They were overwhelmed. They are overwhelmed. 
And that overwhelmingness causes them to sing and to declare with loud voices. There's nothing timid about the worship we see in heaven. There's no self-awareness. It's just letting go because of the one who we so enamored with, so caught up with, that we cannot but be loud and bold and front-footed and assured in our worship. But notice these two scriptures. We see that they both sang to God and they sang about God. That's the wonderful thing in our times of worship is we're singing to God directly, but we're also singing about Him and the wonder of who He is, and the wonder of all that He's done. But one thing you will never see is that worship is never about them. As you look at those examples, particularly in the book of Revelation, it's never about themselves. But also, as I said, it's never passive. They are fully engaged in their worship of What an example for us. What an example for me. What a challenge for us to equally be fully engaged. Not my mind on other things. Not singing words with my lips, my heart's far from it. But fully engaged. And you know what makes worship so personal? Is that God is in the room. God is in the room. God dwells with worshiping people. God inhabits the praises of those who would worship him. It's an incredible truth. And so that's the first point. God is worthy of our worship. And Jesus made it clear that if we won't worship God, then he will cause the stones to cry out in worship. Because he is worthy of our worship. Amen. Secondly, worship then is about us doing and, can I say, fulfilling the will of God. How do I know that? Well, many scriptures talk about that, but let's look at one. Ephesians 5, verse 15 through to 20. Of course, it's Paul writing to the church that is in Ephesus. And he says, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise making the most of the time because the days are evil. Then he says, therefore. Now, I always like to know what a therefore is there for. And so Paul now begins to explain, explain what it means to be wise and to make the most of our time. When he says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, here it is. He's about to tell us what God's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. In other words, that isn't God's will. But instead, now here we get to what God's will is. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's being filled with the Spirit that allows us to do these very things that Paul is highlighting. And so in the context of being wise and making the most of our time, Paul includes singing spiritual songs and singing to the Lord. Which means then that our corporate worship 
is not just about knowing and understanding what God's will is, but then also doing it. Actually doing it. Now, of course, the, the Psalms are full of commands to worship God, which, of course, we can either obey or disobey. Hey, bottom line. And so I just pulled out a few. In Psalm 96, verse 1 and 2, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth, which I guess includes us. Eh? Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Not just on a Sunday, but certainly including Sundays. 98, verse 4, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. And so I thank God for the worship team this morning because they help us to burst out in jubilant song and in joyful singing because they at least can hold a note, which I often can't. Eh? Psalm 99 verse 5, extol, exalt the Lord, our God, with worship at his footstool. Enter 100 verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise his name. And of course, we could go on and on and on. But my point is this, that this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. To be joyful in praise. To pray and to praise continually. To give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because this is us now living in the perfect will of God. Amen. You agree? Good to know. And then the third point is that God seeks worship in that he wants to be worshipped. And he seeks worshippers. Those who will worship in what? In spirit and in truth. He seeks them. He's looking for them. He's waiting, watching. Who will those true worshipers be? Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be one of those. And so let's look at John chapter 4. Now, time doesn't allow, because I've got a clock there now, to read the whole passage of the story of the, of the Samaritan woman whom Jesus encounters with at the well. Amazing story, worth reading the whole thing. But for the sake of time, we'll pick it up from verse 20. And as Jesus is engaging with her and they're talking, she says to him, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, physical locality is not the issue when it comes to worship. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Again, so important, we know who we're worshiping. That we have ongoing revelation of the one that we're singing our songs of praise, the ones we're lifting our hands to, the ones our heads and our eyes are on. We've got to know him. And we've got to be growing in our knowledge and our understanding of who he is. Because it's very hard to be a true worshiper if you don't know the one you're worshiping. 
Yes, you may know about him. That's not good enough. You've got to know him personally, intimately. And that's what Jesus is saying. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus is saying no longer is worship confined or limited to temples or to techniques or even to traditions, but rather it is now a spiritual activity that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul says the same in Philippians 3 verse 3, when he says, For it is we who worship, how? By the Spirit of God. That's how we worship, friends. We don't worship out of the flesh. We don't worship out of someone else's revelation. We don't worship because we've been told this is the thing you do on a Sunday. No, we worship by the power of the Spirit of God in the life of the Spirit. And that's why to worship without the presence and without the empowering of the Spirit, can I say, is not New Testament worship. Why? Because the worship that God seeks is Spirit-filled, is Spirit-led, is Spirit-enabled worship. Jesus is saying. When Paul writes to the Galatians, in Galatians 4 verse 6, he says, because you are his sons, in other words, there's intimacy, there's reality, there's genuine relationship here. He says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. That incredible term of endearment, that very personal call. But here's the thing, it's only the Holy Spirit who enables us to cry, Abba, Father. It's only the Holy Spirit who allows us to be intimate and to be personal with Him who is the creator of all things, our Father in heaven. Not a God who is far away, but our Father who art in heaven. And we can hallow His name. Because of the wonder of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do that. And that's why true worship does not just involve our bodies. Yes, it must. As we lift our heads, as we lift our hands, as we kneel before the Lord, as we lie prostrate before Him. But it's not just our bodies, just like it's not just our lips. With our voices raised to Him in praise and in prayer. But true worship has to also involve our spirits. Our spirit being ignited by his spirit. It's where our spirit, small s, communes with him who is spirit, capital S. And you know what? This was Mary's worship. And you read in Luke 1.46, where she says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Not just my body, not just my lips, 
not just my hands raised, but my spirit rejoices in the Lord my Savior. What is the point? Simply this. God seeks those who will worship in spirit, who will worship in the spiritual realm, as opposed to those just going through the motions, just singing songs, and ultimately ending up doing it in the flesh. God's looking for those whose spirits are worshiping and responding to him through their spirit. That's why this kind of worship, my friends, let me say, isn't optional. We actually don't have a choice in this. Because Jesus says those who worship God must worship, not should or could, no, must worship in spirit and in truth. There's a definite here. Now, one of the things I learned when I came to this country is you don't tell Kiwis that they must do anything. <laughs> you agree with that, eh? I learned that the hard way. Where in my passionate preaching, I was saying, guys, we have to do this. This is what we must do. That didn't go down well. But you know what? When Jesus says it and when God's word says it, I think it takes on a whole new meaning. Then when Jesus says true worshipers must, then we've got to lean in and say, actually, it's about kingdom culture and language that I need to submit to and not my own culture or what my culture dictates. This is the truth of God's word. Which means then, of course, that if our spirits are not worshiping God, well, then we are not truly worshiping God. Bottom line. And if our worship isn't true, if it isn't real, if it isn't authentic, and if it's not according to the truth of God's word, then in the same way, we are not truly worshiping God, according to what Jesus says. A.W. Tozer puts it like this when he says, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. It's a good reminder, eh? Not everything in culture is bad. But if it's more about what culture wants and what culture dictates or whether culture determines what is nice or not so good, then we're in trouble. It's the Christ within us. That's the essence of our worship. All right. So, true worship then is not something that can be self-generated. It's not something that can be worked up within us. But rather, it's the outpouring of our hearts in response to who it is we worship. And it can only be done by the enabling and the inspiration of God's Spirit. Worship, let me tell you as well, or let me say, is deeply emotional. It has to be. In that it's got to be sincere. It's got to be heartfelt. But in the same breath, it's deeply doctrinal in that it's got to be biblical and it's got to be accurate. It's not one or the other. And I think sometimes in our endeavor to be so doctrinal in our worship, we lose the emotion. And sometimes in our emotion, and emotion is good, it's God-given, we can just end up singing anything, doing anything, saying anything that's actually not that biblical. Both are important. 
And so some of you who are a little staid, ask God to help you to become a little more emotional in your worship. Because you can get emotional with your spouse, and your kids, and your work colleagues. And those of you who maybe on the other extreme, who just love the emotion of worship and the feeling, and that is all good and well. But understand equally, it's deeply doctrinal. It's in spirit and in truth. Not our truth, not man's truth, but God's truth. All right. So, should we bring it to a conclusion? I think that's about 27 minutes now. Huh? The nature of worship. But to sum up everything I've said this morning, the nature of worship is based on our revelation of who it is we're worshiping, but equally on, in our, on our relationship to the one that we're worshiping. Again, it's not one or the other. Isn't it true? We always like to lean one way or the other. Huh? No, actually, it's revelation. Oh, Lord, as Paul said, that we would know him and keep knowing him, growing in our knowledge of who he is. But also, it's our, uh, it's our relationship with him. That he's not far away. That we don't have to relate to him from a distance. But we relate close. Because we have a revelation of who he is. It's where we are wanting to seek him and his beauty. Even before his blessing. Where we would seek his face. Before we'd seek his beauty. Where the giver of the gifts is more important and more precious to us, to us than the gifts that he has to offer. That's the worship we're talking about. It's where we have an expectation of truly encountering God. Whether that's on your own, in a quiet place, or whether that's happening here on a Sunday. We want to engage with God. We want to connect. We want to commune with Him. We want to encounter Him. And we're able to do it on a personal, intimate basis. This is the worship. The worship that God is seeking. He is looking for. So next week, as I said, Liam will look at the purpose of worship, why we should worship, and why it is so important and so valuable. But this morning is in many ways just hopefully trying to set the, the scene for what we're going to be doing over the next three weeks as we look at the nature, the essence, and the importance of worship some of what that might look like. Yeah? Should we pray? All right, let's do that. Hope that was helpful. So, Father, again, we, we remind ourselves we don't ever want to be like the man who looked at himself in the mirror and then immediately went away and forgot what he looked like. And that is used, James uses it in the context of being those who are not just hearers of God's word, but are also doers of his word, who want to put into practice that which we've heard. And I ask, Father, that that would be true for every one of us here this morning. That as we look, and as we've looked at the nature of worship, that, Lord, we would have ongoing revelation of this incredible truth that 
that you, Lord, are so worthy of our gratitude. That as we get caught up with you, as we get to know you in a greater way, in a deeper way, in a more intimate way, Lord, our worship of you would be our natural response. And that we would acknowledge that you are worthy of it. That we would not want to ever hold our praise, our prayers, our shouts of joy, our songs. We'd never want to hold that back from you. Because you are worthy of it. But then secondly, Lord, we'd also be those who, who know that this is actually us doing your will. The will to worship you. That it so pleases you, delights you. Help us to be faithful in doing your will. And then lastly, Lord, to know that you actually on the lookout for true worshipers. That you seek worshipers as much as you seek worship. Help us to be those, Lord, who know what it is to worship you in spirit, in a spiritual way, and in truth. Real and authentic in accordance to you, in accordance with your will, your ways, and your word. Father, let our corporate worship take on new meaning for us. As we go through these four weeks, Lord, I ask we would not only have a fresh understanding of you, but there would be a fresh expression of our singing and of our praise and of our worship of you. We ask that you would help us, that you, Holy Spirit, would enable us, even as you promised to. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.